Blog Talk Radio. Hey everybody, it's your girl Cy Brown, and today is Monday. Happy Monday to everybody. I hope everyone had a great weekend. I know I did. I had a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Um, on Saturday, the weather here in New York was simply gorgeous. I mean, it was probably like 75 degrees, sunny. So on Saturday, I attended the Go Green Expo, which I told all of you on Friday that I was going to attend. And I amassed so much information on how to go green. I actually sampled organic vodka. <laughs> it was uh, They had this like different flavors of organic vodka. They had so many. Well, you know, I had to get the little alcohol thing in there. But anyway, they had some amazing, amazing products, services, um, new innovative things, just a host of stuff on going green and organic. And you all know that I, I made the commitment that our show every single Wednesday is just about ways to go green. So you're really going to hear me talking a lot about this for the rest of the year. I'm so, so incredibly excited because there's a lot of things happening on how to green our environment and sustainability and things like that. So that's what I did Saturday afternoon. That I met my girlfriend, and we went up to Harlem on uh, Saturday evening, walked around. It was just fun being in Harlem. And, uh, and yesterday, had a meeting with a client, and uh, last night cooked dinner. Yeah, I made some fried chicken, some macaroni and cheese, and had a great, great Sunday dinner with my husband and my children. So I had a wonderful weekend. I hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. I hope everyone's weekend was just as blessed and favored as mine was. You know, I wish everybody the same benefits and blessings that I have in my life, and I always try to share as much as I can with all of you. Um, today, you know, every single Monday we talk about personal development, and we start our week off with a lesson from ancient wisdom to help us on our personal journey of enlightenment. So today we're going to hear a wonderful message from Dr. Wayne Dyer. Uh, he's, he's got some great teachings. Whether you subscribe to his philosophies or not, he just has some really good stuff. So without further ado, I just invite you to follow me on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash life remixed. You can hit me up on Facebook, and I definitely encourage you to follow my blog, CyBrown.com. So let's get into today's lesson with Dr. Wayne Dyer. It's your girl, Cy Brown, right here for LifeRemixedRadio.com. I can remember my grandmother saying to me, you can do anything you want if you just set your mind to it. At the time she said it, I must say that the reality of the simple adage went past me. But over the years, I've come to realize how true it was. Each of us has the power within to attract whatever we want. Indeed, be careful what you wish for, because you're going to get it. The possibilities are limitless. And I am recalling the words of Rumi, the 13th century Persian Sufi poet. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down the dulcimer. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Our guest, Wayne Dyer, has spent more than two decades writing and speaking about the ways to manifest your vision in the world and pursue your authentic path. 
Wayne Dyer is acknowledged worldwide as the father of motivation and is described by another well-known author and speaker, Marianne Williamson, as one of America's foremost teachers of transformational wisdom. He lectures throughout the world and has written numerous best-selling books, including Pulling Your Own Strings, the best-selling book of the 1970s, Real Magic, Manifest Your Destiny, and Wisdom of the Ages, A Modern Master Brings Eternal Truths into Everyday Life. Join us for the next hour as we explore the fascinating territory of creating your life the way you want it with Wayne Dyer. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Wayne, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be with you again, Michael. Same here. Wayne, you know, there's an interesting story about how you wrote Wisdom of the Ages, and I want to ask you, you know, how did that book come to, come to be? Well, I had, uh, there were two parts to it, really. I, had, uh, I was a teacher for most of my life, school teacher, a college professor, various levels of education. And uh, I always was very deeply touched by the, uh, the wisdom of, of ancient masters. I, did, I used a lot of quotations. I've always used a lot of quotations. and I felt very connected to uh, many of the, of the people uh, that are in this book. And um, my students used to always say to me, what is what somebody said a thousand years ago, 500 years ago, what's that got to do with me? This is now, this is today, that was ancient times. And I guess writing uh, this book was my answer to that question. Orrin Lyons, the, uh, the great Native American philosopher and poet, said that uh, when we walk upon Mother Earth, we always plant our feet very carefully because... We know the faces of our future generations are looking up at us from beneath the ground, and we never forget them. And I think that uh, we were looking up at uh, at our ancestors. Yes. And whether those ancestors were Rumi, as you just discussed, or whether it was uh, Pythagoras, or whether it was Shelley, or Keats, or, or Yeats, or uh, Martin Luther King Jr., or whomever, that uh, <clears throat> all of these people had a very strong sense of passion uh, and it wasn't so much what they had to say as how they lived their lives that really intrigued me. And the second part of how this book came about is that I, uh, I really wanted to look at the, uh, the qualities of, of higher consciousness or self-actualization. Maslow was, a, was a, a very profound teacher in my life. In fact, he died the very same day uh, on the 14th of June, 1970, that I received my doctorate. Wow. And I often felt that a baton was passed on, that he had sort of said, this is what it is now. You explain it to all the cab drivers and the pizza <laughs> delivery boys. Right. Because that's kind of what I did when I was growing up. Yes. And so I took the qualities of, of, of higher consciousness or self-actualization that Maslow spoke about, and I took 60 of the most profound teachers, and I uh, put them together and decided to write an essay uh, a day for 60 days. I call this 60 Days to Enlightenment. Read an essay a day for 60 days on 60 of the greatest teachers and... Uh, Watch what happens in your life. So can we expect a continuing series of uh, Wisdom of the Ages? <laughs> I was just asked that. Someone's asked me, you know, it's like chicken soup. <laughs> I don't know about Wisdom of the Ages for the golfer. I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, it's a good practice just generally, I think, to go back to um, what I would call perennial wisdom uh, because these, these, these insights, these teachings, I mean, they are profound and they're timeless. 
absolutely. And 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 these people. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had the sense, Michael, of uh, of walking in places where our ancestors walked. Um, particularly, I was in the uh, in Greece. Deepak Chopra and I were, we took a group of people to Greece uh, a couple of years ago, and we were walking through the Parthenon. Yes. Uh, and and you, he was saying to me, and the way he always says things, <laughs> yes. you know, do you realize that uh, you are drinking the same water that Socrates drank, and uh, yes. you're breathing the same air that Pythagoras breathed, and the, and you're looking up at the same sun that uh, you know that Plato looked up at, and you have a sense of uh, of our connection because when you realize that we are not these bodies, we are not this world of form that there's a sacred hoop, if you will, that connects everything that ever was and ever is uh, and ever will be, that uh, in, in, in a true sense we are literally, spiritually connected to all of these people who, uh, who walked before us. And most of them, the, the intriguing thing about these people is that none of them died with their music still in them. You know, they, they had a strong sense of passion about their lives. And, yes. and they weren't going to get to the end of their life and say, what if my whole life has been wrong, like Ivan Illich? And they were also troublemakers. You know, almost so, so many of them. Many of them were. Did I be able to say that? Pardon? Did I be able to say? Yes, that? right. Yeah. Really? What if my whole life has been wrong? You know, imagine lying on your on your deathbed, you know, mm. contemplating that thought and the yeah, death really. of Ivan Illich. You know, and uh, <clears throat> and that, as I said, they were troublemakers. I mean, these were people who, uh, uh, you know, society sort of honors our living conformists and our dead troublemakers. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but many of these people were placed in prison. Some were crucified. Some were, many of them were thought to be insane. And yet they, they didn't seem to care about that. They were independent of all of that. You know, when I heard, when you said Ivan Illich, you know, I thought you were talking about Tolstoy's Ivan Illich. I was thinking of Ivan Illich. Oh, no, no. And no, the contemporary yeah, Ivan Illich. No, Tolstoy is the death of Ivan Illich. Yeah, exactly, yeah, right. right. I wanted to yeah. make that distinction because I kind of got carried away there yeah. uh, with the other uh, contemporary yeah. Illich. Um, well, I'm in a historical mode here. So. Well, you know, I just want to, I think it's a great point you make. And I, I can remember as a child, I grew up in Virginia, uh, being struck by the uh, I got had an early interest in the in the Civil War and of course Virginia is you know a place mm. to have that interest yes. and I used to get my parents to stop at every battlefield you know and as a kid I felt that the 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 energy of the battlefield you know it was like an energy hit mm. and it was like I was in touch with that and and as a child and you know as I've got, grown older in history I've always wanted I've always gone to historical places and and it's like there's a morphic, you know, saying like in Sheldrake's terms, it's a morphic field of energy. Absolutely. Present. So when you go th- walk along the par- through the Parthenon, there's a morphic field of energy there. There's no question about that. I just had an experience. Let me share it with you. Yes. Because uh, I know how the show works. We can <laughs> do it stream of consciousness. Yes. I was uh, in South Africa 12 days ago, and uh, I spoke in Cape Town, and I spoke in Johannesburg. And uh, we took a, uh, a ferry over to Robben Island, where uh, Nelson Mandela was uh, in prison for 17 of his 27 years. And uh, the this now is a uh, sort of like a national uh, park kind of thing, and the former inmates are now the people who uh, who guide the, the people through it, and you pay, and, the, and this is how they make a living. And, of course, all of the people that were in Robben Island were there for two reasons. One, because uh, they were uh, at the wrong place at the wrong time. They were mostly picked up at meetings of the ANC someplace in the, in the you know, people who were protesting apartheid. And two, they were there because they were black. It was because they segregated the, uh, 
population. So basically, Robben Island was a place where people were incarcerated uh, because they were innocent, right? And there was an awful lot of suffering that went on there amongst uh, innocent people who just were protesting the system called apartheid. Yes. And I sat and, and I stood there in the cell where Nelson Mandela was, and I went in there with a little boy who lives in South Africa. He's, uh, he's 11 years old, and the people who had brought me over there, it was nobody else wanted to go over there. My wife didn't want to go. No one thought that that was a place to go. But for me, being there uh, in that place yes. was a, a moving experience. Because I feel, Michael, that... Uh, that the reason that, uh, that that whole transformation took place in South Africa with relatively little violence was because Mandela was um, able to, uh, was forced, if you will, into silence for a long, long period of time. And when you're forced into silence, uh, you begin to commune with God. That's what meditation is really about. And he came out with forgiveness and reconciliation in his heart, and it was it literally radiated to the whole country, and I think to the whole planet. Anyway, when we came out of that, uh, we got off the ferry, we came back, and when we walked out of the cell, uh, that little boy, Simeon, looked at me and he said, I didn't, I felt wrong in there, in his little 11-year-old voice. That's all he could say, I felt wrong in there. I felt so strongly that um, I, was, I was doing everything I could to uh, stop myself from breaking out into tears. And it wasn't because of my thoughts so much as the, as the energy. I don't know, have you ever been to the Anne Frank House in, uh, in uh, Amsterdam? I never have, no. I take my daughter, whenever I go to Amsterdam to speak, I always take one of my daughters there and we walk through there. When you, the last time I walked through there, I couldn't catch my breath. It was so thick with sadness and yes. heaviness. Yes. And I had the opposite exact feeling when I went into the uh, Ponciuncula in uh, Florence, where, or in Assisi, rather, where St. Francis uh, had, had done all of his healing and all of his prayer. It was the most wonderful feeling of bliss. I was just recently in Machu Picchu in, uh, yes, in uh-huh. Peru. Have you ever been up there? I have not been to Machu Picchu. No. Five days of, of absolute uh, feeling of well-being like I've never known before. There's, there's like what you're saying is there's an energy. Yes. And this energy is left over, if you will. And if yes. there's been negative... I remember Stuart Wilde telling me that he stayed in a hotel in, uh, in Copenhagen one night and he, he kept seeing demons in the middle of the night. He couldn't sleep. And the next day he found out that this was the Nazi headquarters uh, oh, in wow. that particular hotel. And he has, he's very sensitive to that kind of energy. Yes. So it's like, yeah, we're connected. There's, a, there's more than just a, a, a thought connection between uh, ourselves and all of these masters and all of these things. That, yeah, yeah, the invisible world. Mm. Invisible but that thing world. with Nelson Mandela was really, really deeply touching. It sounds that it was mm. a very powerful experience. I can, I can, I can hear it in your voice. Right. For sure. You know, I want to acknowledge you, uh, Wayne, as someone who, you know, I think I first, uh, we first had one of these dialogues maybe in 1981, something like that. Right. And it was that when we were on State Street in San Francisco. Right. I remember. And, uh, you know, you're someone who, when I first met you, you know, I remember you came in in a pair of running shorts and you had a Diet Coke in your hand, you know, <laughs> and a, you know, and a sweatshirt kind mm-hmm. of thing and you were kind of, still kind of jogging, as it were, right. as you came into the office, you know. And uh, anyway, so that was a kind of an interesting uh, vision mm-hmm. um, that didn't quite match my expectations, mm-hmm. uh, that whatever they were at the time. And just over the years, you know, just um, I want to say that I've appreciated the fact that you have remained consistent to your, the words that you have expressed publicly in lots of places and the words that you've written in your book. I mean, you're someone who I say has walked their talk. And I just want to acknowledge you publicly here on the air 
as someone who's done that, and that's not easy to do, particularly when you're expressing positive ideas and you're saying, hey, there's something else here. There's, there, there's a way out that, you know, we've got problems, yes, and there's other ways to look at the world and other ways to address this. And often in our society, people like yourself are seen as Pollyannish or, you know, criticized because you're not being, quote, realistic right. or you're not really yeah. seeing the real picture. Well, and I, so I just want to acknowledge you, well, thank you for hanging in there for 20-some years. I heard Marianne Williamson one time when she was interviewed, I don't know if it was on New Dimensions or whatever, when someone said they accused her of being Pollyannish. She said, well, that was one of the greatest compliments that she ever had. She said, here was this young girl who came to this town where everybody was gloomy and depressed and down, and after she had been there for a week, everybody was happy and thrilled, and the right. economy was thriving and everything was going well. Uh, being a Pollyanna is probably not such a bad thing to be called, I think. Really? Yeah. Really? But I, this is something, when you say that, Michael, you say it's not, it's not easy. I've never thought of this as very difficult, and I've, certainly, oh, and I've never thought of it as risk-taking. I've just always spoken from my heart about uh, what I believe in, and, and there have been enormous uh, shifts and growths uh, for me uh, throughout these uh, 25 or 30 years that I've yes. been before the microphones of America. Yes. I now speak about spirituality, but I still live exactly what I, I, I speak from my heart, I write from my heart, and that's yes. what we do. Yes. Well, it's a good way to go. Yeah. Uh, I'm speaking with Wayne Dyer, author of Wisdom of the Ages, A Modern Master Brings Eternal Truths into Everyday Life, and Manifest Your Destiny, The Nine Spiritual Principles for Getting Everything You Want. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Wayne Dyer, author of Wisdom of the Ages and um, many other books that have been bestsellers. And Wayne travels the world speaking, um, expressing himself from his heart, as he said earlier. And um, we're talking about how we can find wisdom in the midst of everyday life uh, because it's there. Uh, we just have to uh, see clearly and become more aware. I want to go to um, uh, some of the parts of Wisdom of the Ages, and there's a particular uh, piece on hope where you have a quote from Michelangelo, um, and the greatest danger for most of us is not that our aim is too high and we miss it, but that it is too low and we reach it. And uh, let's talk about hope. Okay. I have been accused over the years in the critical press of, um, of providing false hope to people. Uh, people will call, and I'll be on a, t a talk show on the radio someplace in the world, and uh, someone will call in who's been diagnosed with a terminal illness of some kind, and I will talk to them about uh, about about not buying into the diagnosis, about you know why would you just listen to a group of people who have a vested interest in uh, in convincing you of, uh, of of this impending doom in your life, and the the law that has allowed ever, ever allowed any miracle to ever take place in the history of humanity is still on the books. It hasn't been repealed. 
so that that energy, whatever it is, uh, whoever has ever healed themselves of a, uh, of a, a diagnosis of terminal illness, uh, uh, used the same kind of energy that uh, is in you. And so people say, well, that's providing false hope and so on. And I remember, um, again, to speak about Michelangelo, I mean, these people that I, uh, that, I, that I selected for, or that selected me uh, for Wisdom of the Ages, uh, I feel after studying their lives in depth and, uh, and, and looking at not only what they had to say, but what they were like, I mean, I feel uh, like you're talking about my, my grandfather or something when yes. you speak about Michelangelo. And again, in Florence, um, when, when we went to Florence, uh, I said, I'm just going to go see the statue of David. And I thought, well, I'll just look at this statue. You know, everybody has to see David. Yes. And I walked in there, and you go through this long corridor, and you see all of these uh, slaves on either side that are coming out of the concrete that were uh, all uh, sculpted by Michelangelo. And then you come into this room that's all lit, and then there's this statue, this magnificent statue, and it's 18 feet high. And um, it is the most astounding uh, thing I've ever seen. And I'm not a big uh, art critic or even going to uh, art shows and sculpture yes. and all that. It's, I, I enjoy it, but it's not something that I have a passion about. Yes. Well, four hours later, Michael, I was still standing in front of that statue. My wife and my three daughters were out there climbing El Duomo and buying shoes and doing all the things that you do when you're in Italy. Right. And they came back and they said, uh, Dad, come on, come on, we have to leave. And I, I felt like I couldn't, uh, I couldn't leave that place. It was such a beautiful experience. I mean, the, the you can see every vein in the, uh, you know, in this thing, and it's a, it's just a magnificent experience. So when they ask, you know, there's this wonderful quote that they ask Michelangelo, how could you have created such a, a, perf a perfect uh, specimen of, of sculpture from uh, from one piece of marble? His famous quote is that uh, David was already in the marble. I just chipped away the excess. Yes. You know, and that there's a David inside each and every one of us. Yes. And and this idea of of, of uh, if you're you know the greater danger is not that our hopes are too high, and we fail to reach them. It's that they are too low, and we do. And most people see themselves uh, in terms they don't see. I, I think you should see yourself as a saint. You know, and I see. I think a person ought to be envisioning themselves as capable of doing anything. I think it's possible to excel in every area of life. That is, you don't have to sort of restrict yourself to one area. I think you can enjoy going to a national football league game in the afternoon and going to the ballet in the evening. Yes. And people say, well, you're a speaker. Usually speakers, uh, and you and you get paid a lot for speaking. So you uh, usually speakers are not good writers, you know, or because one is introverted and so and supposedly and one is extroverted. And I have often thought, why can't you be a really fine writer and a great speaker as well? Sure. And why can't you be a great athlete and a poet as well? Why not? And all, most of these people, like Goethe and Michelangelo and Da Vinci and and Shakespeare and and Pope and so many of these people, like, these were people who were who were masters at at a thousand different things. Well, I know you've been to Bali, and I've been to yeah. Bali, and one of the things about Bali that was very impressive to me uh, is the fact that in Bali you're, you'll often run into people who you, you, they might be a waiter in the restaurant or in the hotel or whatever, and they're also a sculptor, a carver, a wood carver. Right. They may be a dancer at night. Mm -hmm. The Balinese have multiple uh, creative talents, and they use all of them. 
Isn't that interesting? How we like in medicine now. I mean, now you you know you you have a specialist who specializes in the right finger. You know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> we have hand specialists. We have foot specialists and nose exactly. specialists. And imagine going to school for years and studying only the hand. Yes. You know, whereas here was Da Vinci or Michelangelo, and they studied. You know, they were they were anatomists. I mean, they studied anatomy. Uh, and we're medical people, you know. They stay, the way that Michelangelo learned about, uh, you know, how to how to do sculpture was by uh, examining cadavers. They would they would literally steal the cadavers and go through, and he would examine them. And the, you know, it's like when you when you discover the the greatness that's in in yourself, uh, you know, and and not re- restricting yourself in any way. You know, think big, I guess, is the answer to that. Think and big. In, in uh, Wizard of the Ages, in the Michelangelo part, you, you mentioned the Sistine Chapel, and mm-hmm. it just reminds me of the great story I like to remember about Michelangelo was that sculpting was his primary passion, and he did the Sistine, painted the Sistine Chapel ceiling to subsidize his passion of sculpting. Right. So the Sistine Chapel to Michelangelo was a throwaway. Right, it was an afterthought. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, I'll just, this is my evening job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is, my, this is my part-time job while I do pursue my sculpting. Yeah. I'm you in know? my 80s. I'm going to go lie down on my back for right. four years and right. do this in my spare time so that exactly. I can do what I really love to do. Really. And, and, that's, and not enough of us can think of ourselves as being able to, be, to excel in all areas and to have high hopes about virtually everything because High Hopes is not just a song that Frank Sinatra sang with a bunch of kids. High Hopes is is, uh, being able to visualize and see for yourself what it is that you'd like to uh, be able to accomplish in your life. I had, I don't know if I've told this story here in in New Dimensions, if I have, stop me, but it was, uh, oh, we'll tell it again anyway. Tell it again anyway. (laughs) I was in Maui uh, about four or five years ago and a woman named Jan uh, saw me uh, at the at the uh, walk into the restaurant, and I had been on AM Los Angeles the day before. Yes. And so she had recognized me, and I had flown in, and she said, "Come on over." And she was sitting there with her husband. Okay. Now her husband's name was Wayne. Also, his name was Wayne Gretzky. Now, yes. You, I assume you know who. Wayne yeah, the Gretzky. hockey player, right. the famous hockey player. Right. Probably the most famous hockey player yes. that has ever laced on a pair of skates. And this is not about hockey. It is more about uh, how does someone get to be the greatest in what they uh, accomplish in the world, all right? I mean, this guy, when I grew up, I wanted to be a hockey player, and Gordie Howe and people like that from back in the, uh, you know, right. from the Detroit Red Wings. And back in the Pleistocene era, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I made set records that never were going to be broken. In a few years, this skinny little kid from Ontario comes out and breaks every hockey record that has ever been set, all right? Yes. And so I meet him, and he doesn't have a clue of who I am, all right? <laughs> But his wife uh, has read my books and so on. So we're talking, and whenever I meet somebody who's who's uh, achieved at the very highest level, whatever it is, whether they play hockey or whether they whether they write books or whatever it is, uh, I'm interested in how they got to be there. Yes. This guy's maybe five foot ten. He weighs maybe 160 pounds. He's a skinny little guy. He t- he doesn't look. And I say to him, how how did you get to be able to break every record that's ever been set in hockey? And he said, I go to practice. I said, well, you know, I said, who doesn't go to practice? It was yes. a professional hockey player. And after we talked, we must, it must have taken me an hour to get this out of him. And finally he said this to me. He said, when I'm on the ice and I shoot, a, a, <clears throat> I shoot the puck and I score a goal, he said, I can see the puck going in the net just before I shoot it. And I thought, that's, you know, there's a, there's a real... Uh, 
important lesson in there for every one of us. You know, you see a golfer standing out on a, a tee uh, on a green, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. Jack Nicholas was asked, why do you stand there so long? Are you waiting for the grass to grow? What? Yes. And he said, I don't, I don't hit the ball until I can see it going in the hole in my mind. And I think that the ability to be able to go inside, close your eyes, if you will, get a vision of what it is that you would like to accomplish, and then follow through on that vision, that that's probably what separates out the highest the functioning people at the very highest levels from the rest of us who uh, have our vision after we've accomplished it rather than before. Yes. Well, I, I know I've heard similar stories, not the same, but like I think Cal Ripken also said, mm. had a story about practice that the reason he got to play in so many games and is as good as he is, um, is practice. Right. Just constantly practice. And also, I would imagine Michael Jordan might say something about visualizing. Well, you know, it, uh, there's a, uh, I call it the four pathways to mastery. And uh, it, because most of these people in wisdom of the ages practice these four pathways. The first pathway is called discipline. All right, so this is like uh, you have to train the body. Right? So you have to go to practice. Yes. Right? The second, now we're not talking about education here. We're talking about mastery. The second uh, pathway is called wisdom, uh, and that is the application of the mind to what you've trained yourself to do. So if you're going out to learn how to hit a, you know, shoot a basket or to hit a tennis ball or to make a lemon meringue pie or dance the Macarena or anything, the first thing you do is you train your body, you get it in shape, and the second thing you do is you apply wisdom, the mind, to it. Right? Now this is what we mean by education. So that if we send our children off to school, we say to them, uh, you know, get some discipline and use your head. <laughs> and basically you've got an education. Yes. But that's not mastery. The, the top two levels of mastery include the third one's called... Uh, uh, unconditional love. I watched uh, uh, Pavarate sing uh, uh, at one of the three tenors, you know, so we yes, went to sure. a concert, uh, yes. uh, 42,000 of us at a, at a football stadium in, uh, in wow. Florida. Yeah. And they had a screen on him, Michael, that was 30 feet high. That's three stories high, and they right. showed a close-up of him. Now, this is a man, how many times has he sang O Solo Mio yes. in Italian, all right. right? There's nobody in the stadium understands Italian, but it doesn't matter. They show a close-up on his face on this 30-foot screen, and he is in bliss. He's yes. just in bliss. And I said to my wife, who was, was sitting next to me, I said, honey, I said, this guy has obviously gone to practice. I mean, you, right. you've got to practice to be the best in the world. And he's also, obviously, he's, uh, he's got great wisdom. He has studied. But that's not what makes him the greatest tenor in the world. I said, look at the love. Oh, so love me. I mean, he was just, uh, you know, every fiber of him was involved in this. He was just so, he was in love with what he was doing. And he was not, he wasn't selling us the song. He was selling us the love. Yes. That's the third pathway. But the highest pathway is what we really call mastery is what we call surrender, which is when you get to that place where you realize that uh, this is not you who's doing any of this, that you're not, uh, you're not this body, this is not your home, this is not, uh, this is not you that's doing it. There's something that you're connecting to called spirit or consciousness or higher awareness, and you're allowing God, I guess, if you will, to flow through you and, uh, and, and send that out into the world. That's what the highest of them are. I mean, think of Michael Jordan says, I don't know how I do that. I just surrender. Yes. You know, the, the, well, that whole idea of being able to, to get your ego out of the way. Yes. Let's talk more about that when we come back. I'm speaking with Wayne Dyer, author of Wisdom of the Ages and Manifest Your Destiny. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
My guest is Wayne Dyer, and we're talking about how we can follow our authentic path and actually do what we want to do and do it um, in ways that uh, might surprise us. And um, Wayne, I wanted to follow up on the surrender with the, la- the highest uh, principle that you mm. talked about because one of the things in, in my experience, if I've learned a few secrets of life, I'm, not a lot, but a mm. few. One of them is um, letting go. Yes, and it has to do with surrender. It, letting go of wanting to control uh, life. I mean, mm. uh, do you find that to be uh, true? I do. Well, I was just asked the question in South Africa, but they were interviewing me one of the newspapers there, and they and the woman uh, hit me with this question. She said, "What's what's been the greatest accomplishment of your life?" And my ego started really going into, you know, high gear. And I was thinking about, you know, how how many books I'd written, how how many times I'd appeared on The Tonight Show, or, you know, uh, where I was on bestseller lists. And, and you know, all of this, I I I wasn't saying a word. I was just sort of rattling all of these things off that my ego wanted to say. And then finally it hit me, and I said to to the woman, I said, uh, I think the greatest accomplishment of my life has been my ability to tame my ego. And to no longer uh, see myself as uh, uh, as what I have and what I do and what other people think of me. I'm not I'm not my possessions. I'm not my accomplishments. I'm not my reputation. I've been able to see myself as uh, as a spiritual being, if you will, having that human experience. And that is involved with letting go, as they say in that recovery movement. You let go and you let God. And that may sound trite, but it's really um, it's really one of the great secrets to uh, being able to attract and manifest into your life. One of the people that I selected in Wisdom of the Ages is, uh, or selected me, was this uh, this man who we don't even know when he was born or when he lived. His name was Patanjali. I'm, I'm yes. sure you're familiar with Patanjali, yes. Yes. The, the original Yoga Sutras, yes, and uh, his book How to Know God, um, yes. And wonderful translation by Swami Prabhupada and Christopher Isherwood. Yes, yes, I have that. Yeah, it's a great translation uh, of that. Yes. And it's, it's just, I mean, every page. It's, I've never read a book that I have, uh, uh, when I read it, I read a page or two and I set it down and I can't wait to get back to it, but I don't want to read it because I'm afraid it's going to end. Okay, <laughs> That's how I feel about that. Book. Right. Because there's so much masterful kinds of, of, of experiences and aphorisms in there that we can apply and really, really reach these miraculous levels. Anyway, he, one of the passages that I used from Patanjali was about this uh, concept called inspiration, which is really what we're talking about here. Because the word inspiration, of course, comes from in spirit. And the word information comes from in form. So this is the age of information. And there's no shortage of information on this planet, you know, with uh, a computer chip that can put the name and address of everybody in the United States on it, and it's just the size of your thumbnail. We've got plenty of information. Yes. When someone is being considered for the Supreme Court uh, nomination and they provide a list of every movie he's rented for the past 10 years, that's more than we need to know about everybody. It's a little, it's a little scary. <laughs> right. It really is how much information we have about people. But what we have is a spiritual deficit, a deficit of spirit. So Patanjali talked about becoming inspired as a source of, uh, and this is what he said. He said, when you are inspired by some great purpose, some extraordinary project, all of your thoughts break their bonds. Your mind transcends limitations. Your consciousness expands in every direction, and you find yourself in a new and a great and a wonderful world. 
And then he said this alarming thing to say. I've, I, I laminated this and carried it with me. He said, dormant forces, faculties, and talents come alive, and you discover yourself to be a greater person by far than you ever dreamed yourself to be. And all you have to do is become inspired, that is, move into the world of spirit. And once we do that, once we leave the form, once we leave the ego, once we leave the idea that I am what I have and what I do and my reputation and what others think of me, and begin to see ourselves as the beloved, as connected to rather than separate from God, and, and, and allow that higher spiritual awareness to flow into our lives, I think that's what we mean when we say surrender, when we say let go. I know what I'm writing. Uh, if I let go, I, my writing is blissful and easy. When I, when I struggle with it and I try to think about the right word and so on, I get, I, I get stuck. S same in an interview or the same in, uh, in, in when I'm speaking on stage or whatever. When I let go, uh, the, 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 you know, it's the old aphorism, when the student is ready, yes. you know, the teachers appear. Tell us how you approach um, your speaking uh, engagements. What do you do? Do you have a speech prepared? Do you take notes? Tell us how you do that. I don't. I, I never use notes. If right. I speak for five hours, I don't use notes. I, I, I'm, <clears throat> I have some key words that I have in, in, in mind. I don't use paper or anything like that. I speak. What I do in, in an audience very often at the very beginning, Michael, is I'll say, if there's a thousand people there, I'll say, uh, well, I'd like everybody to just point to yourself. You know, everybody listening right now, it's a good thing you to do. Just to wherever you are, if you're, uh, even if you're driving, you can put one hand on them and just point to yourself. And you find that the 99.9% .9 of the people, when they point to themselves, are pointing to their heart. Yes. Then, and you never see anybody point to their head. Yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Uh, so we are, you know, we don't think of who we are as our brain, and yet that's all we ever put our attention on is, is, is how much, uh, how much we know. And so, uh, so I do that, and I have I repeat a, I meditate always for at least an hour before I speak. I get very very quiet, and I repeat a mantra, and the mantra that I repeat in my usually in a hotel room someplace, just lying on the floor, is uh, how may I serve, how may I serve, how may I serve, how may I serve, how may I serve. I just keep counting, repeating it, so I try to get my ego out of it. Uh, and it's like this isn't about Wayne Dyer. This isn't about people um, buying my materials. This isn't about people giving me uh, standing ovations. This isn't about uh, being witty and clever and fun. It's like these are people that you are there to serve. That's why you're here. You're here to serve. And I keep reminding myself of that. And if you do that for an hour, if you repeat anything, as you know, Patanjali talks about that, the repetition of something continuously, it becomes your reality. And then when I walk out on the stage, just as I'm being introduced, I always repeat from A Course in Miracles. The line that says, if you knew, not if you believed, but if you knew who walked beside you at all times on this path that you have chosen, you could never experience fear or doubt again. And I think to myself, I've, I surrender. I'm not alone up here, and I'm operating from my heart, and, um, and I'm here to serve. And then I start speaking, and everything just flows. It's, just, it's one of the easiest and most blissful and wonderful experiences Yes, I hear you. And, you know, one of, there was a survey done not too long ago of the, the greatest fear that people have. And at the top of the list, over all the fears, was speaking in public. Public speaking, that's right. Let me tell you, Michael, I make a living public speaking. Huh? Yes. I, when I was a young boy in the ninth grade at Denby High School on the east side of Detroit, 
with Mrs. Sarita Thompson as my English teacher, my English literature teacher, we had to give book reports, oral book reports. We had to do one every two weeks, all right? So we had to get up in front of that class. There's 35 or so kids in there. Uh, and I had to get up and give a book report. Well, I would I would lie in my bed at night, and I would break out into a sweat. <laughs> and I would be so frightened, and I would just wish that Mrs. Thompson would have a minor accident, okay? Right. <laughs> so that when it was my turn, maybe she wouldn't show up, a substitute would be yes. there, and I wouldn't have to do it. I mean, it was, a, it was a terrifying fear, literally, that would immobilize me. I wouldn't be able to sleep. I would think about it all. What, you know, what if I make a mistake? What if I... And it's interesting because this has been the story of my life. When I have something that I'm really terrified of or really frightened of, and this is one of the few things that I ever really felt that kind of fear about, the next semester I signed up for public speaking yes. as a course and because I said, I, this thing owns me. And I, I really, I don't think that I will ever be able to defeat it if I just uh, hope that it goes away. And I, I took a, I took a course where I had to give a speech every third day for 20 weeks. Yes. And by the end of that 20 weeks, I had really overcome my fear of it. And then I began to love it. And and now it's one of the times I feel most at bliss uh, when I'm in front of an audience and speaking. Yes. Yeah, I can, I can, I can, I hear you. I have a similar story. When I was in the ninth grade, I went to a Jesuit prep school, mm-hmm. and I was sitting in the auditorium with the rest of the freshman class being welcomed by the headmaster. And the, it was kind of like an auditorium, and the seats were, you know, kind of together. And, mm-hmm. and he was up there saying, he said, and one of the, one of the, I remember this very vividly, he said, one of these days, you gentlemen in, in the audience there, you will be up here speaking to a full auditorium. And I remember cring, you know, kind of getting as low as I could in my seat, you know, cringing with that statement, no, no, not me. I'm never going to do that. Forget it. You right. know? How can I get out of here? You know? Well, you know, what's interesting because I, after I got over that and I went, into the, I went into the Navy, I spent four years in the service, and I started giving courses when I was in the service. I'd give courses in philosophy and things that I just found interesting that I was writing about and reading about, and I would offer courses on board ship or at, yes. when we were stationed on Guam. And then I got uh, I enrolled at the university uh, at Wayne State University in in Detroit after I got out of the service in 1962, and I used to sit there in class and watch these college professors, who had a captive audience, who would have two three hundred uh, of us in the class, and they were as dull and boring and uninterested and uninvolved yes. and uninspired yes. as it was possible to be, and I would sit there thinking, when it's my turn. When it's my turn to be in front of an audience, I will never, ever treat my audience the way I am being treated right now. Yes. And I use that experience. It's interesting because some people, it's like the children who grow up in families of, say, alcoholics. If you take 100 children that are raised in a family of alcoholism, half of them will look at that and say, that's the most horrible thing. I would never, ever want to do that. And they, will, they refuse absolutely to ever drink, and they stay away from it their whole life. The other half emulate it. Yeah. You know, and the same with children who were born into families of very a lot of wealth and so on. Some of them become philanthropists, and some of them become altruists and give a lot, and others just uh, sit around and, and expect the world to take care of them. Yes. You can never predict. My, the way that I would react to somebody treating me that way was to say I would never allow myself to do that rather than to emulate it. Yes, well, I think that we all have experiences in our life. Everyone uh, has experiences in their life that we've used as fuel. Right. Um, that has fueled us. It may be very difficult experiences. Maybe very, you know, we look back on this, you know, it's a horrible experience, but we use it as fuel to catalyze a new direction for us. Yes. 
to push us, you know. Well, you know, when I was learning to become a therapist, uh, I had a professor who was who was very powerful uh, influence in my life, and he said, you know, there are uh, if you could find if you had a young kid who wasn't motivated, and you could say to and you knew if you could tell exactly how that person was going to react, and you could say to that person, you know, you're the dumbest, the stupidest, you're the you're the kid who's never going to be, be anything, you're never going to amount to anything in your life, and you did nothing but insult them, and that kid was wired together in such a way where he'd say, oh yeah, I'll show you. And, I'll, and and for the rest of their life, they went out there and they, put, and they elevated themselves to the highest places that they could be in their chosen field. He said that was the most effective and uh, important person that ever, you know, was in their life. If you knew how they would do it, he said, the problem is that most people don't know. And he said that's, that's what makes like a great coach, like a Vince Lombardi, for example. He, they say that he knew which person, when he was coaching them, that he had to get on and kick them in the rear end and, and force them to go out, and who he had to sit down and talk with and coddle and, and, and who he had to be persuasive with and who he had to use reason with and who he could show pictures to and so on. You know, it was like uh, if you could figure out what it is that's going to help a person to, uh, to drive themselves to a higher place, you would want to use that and not say that, you know, being critical is, is the worst thing that you can do because for some people being critical, yeah, I have a, a, a poster in my uh, room that says, I am thankful to all of the people who said I couldn't do it. Because of you, I was able to do just that. Yeah, yeah it's true. Yeah. It's true. Thinking of, of Vince Lombardi brings, up that, brings to mind that quote that he's often quoted as saying, uh, winning, winning is in everything, right. winning is the only thing. What do you right. think of that quote? Well, I think it's absurd. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, Because I think winning is, the idea of winning is that I have to, that I evaluate who I am on the basis of how I stack up to those people I'm in competition with. Whereas uh, I think the highest level of consciousness is one in which we are all connected. We all see ourselves as together rather than separate. I heard a wonderful story about that. I don't know if you've ever heard this story. How much time do we have? Prime, yeah, we have time. Yeah. This is a story that uh, Ram Dass told, I think it was in 1969, and I loved it. It's uh, this whole story of what the difference between mystical con uh, uh, consciousness, which is the consciousness of seeing yourself as connected to everyone, versus the consciousness of seeing ourselves as separate. And there was uh, a shepherd, and he was uh, in Nepal, and he was living at this highest level of consciousness. And a visitor from the West <laughs> approached the shepherd and, and said to him, uh, he said, would you mind if I ask you a few questions about your sheep? Have you heard this story? Go ahead. And uh, the shepherd said, well, that would be fine. He said, well, he said, uh, how uh, far do your sheep walk in a given day? And the shepherd said, uh, well, which ones are you speaking about, the white ones or the black ones? And the man from the West said, well, he said, the white ones. And he said, well, the white ones walk uh, four miles every day. He said, hmm. And he said, what about the black ones? He said, oh, the black ones, too. And then he said to him, he said, well, boy, that's interesting. He said, well, could you tell me how much food, how much do they eat in a given day? And the shepherd said, well, which ones are you speaking about, the white ones or the black ones? And he said, well, the white ones. He said, well, the white ones eat uh, three pounds of, of grass every single day. And he said, well... What about the black ones? And the shepherd said, well, the black ones also eat three pounds. And the man was a little bit stumped, and finally he said, well, he said at shearing time in the, uh, in the uh, spring, he said, how much wool do your sheep give? And the man said, how can I answer that unless you tell me the white ones or the black ones? And again, he said, well, the white ones. He said, well, the white ones give six pounds of uh, wool every spring. And he said, what about the black ones? He said, the black ones also. And finally, the man from the West said, look, he said, this is the strangest thing. He said, every time I ask you a question about your sheep, you divide it into the white ones and the black ones, and then you tell me the exact same thing. He said, I don't understand that. 
And the shepherd who lived at this higher level of consciousness said, um, well, he said, I can explain that. That probably is confusing. He said, you see all those white sheep out there? He said, I own those. Those are mine. Oh, the man said, I understand. He said, and what about the black ones? He said, those are mine too. <laughs> I'm speaking with Wayne Dyer, author of Wisdom of the Ages. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I mean, we've had an amazing lesson today, um, facilitated also by Dr. Wayne Dyer. We just had some great lessons and some great information shared with everyone today. I'm just so happy you all joined us. Um, you know, please follow me on Twitter. We're here every single day at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. I see a lot of things in the chat room. I see a lot of people. Wayne Dyer, author of Wisdom of the Ages, A Modern Master Brings Eternal Truths into Everyday Life. And another... I was just saying, sorry about that little technical glitch. I was just saying I see a lot of uh, people in the chat room, and I see a lot of people on the switchboard. Um, um, Let me pick up one of the lines on the switchboard very quickly. Caller from 425, did you have a question or a comment? Area code 425. Okay. Thank you anyway for listening to Life Remixed Radio. We're here every single day at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. Today we heard a wonderful lesson by Dr. Wayne Dyer. Please join us tomorrow at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time where we will be talking about politics for the full show. It's your girl, Cy Brown, right here for Life Remixed Radio. And always remember that we shall pass through this world but once. Any good, therefore, that we can do or any kindness that we can show to any human being, let us do it now. Let us not defer or neglect it, for we shall not pass this way again. I'll see you tomorrow at 12 noon. Thank you so much for listening to Life Remix Radio, and make today your best day ever. Peace.